Welcome back to the In the Dugout podcast. My name is Jason Ward, aka Red Sox Dugout. No Joey, no Garrett, but we've got a great guest co-host this week. Red Sox beat writer for MassLive.com, Chris Cotillo. How's it going, Chris? Good, how are you? I'm good. Uh, let's jump right into it. So biggest news of the week, maybe of the whole offseason, the Red Sox signed ace Chris Sale to a five-year, $145 million contract extension. What does this mean for the Red Sox going forward? What's your take on this? Obviously, it's a huge deal. You know, they have a ton of guys who are up for free agency in the next few years, and uh, a lot of guys that and Dave Dombrowski's come out and said it straight up. I'm not, he's not expecting to re-sign all of them. It's just impossible with Mookie Betts and Xander Bogart, Stady Martinez, Rick Porcello, all these guys, all on expiring deals. So um, to get sale done is, is a good first step. He's a guy who they identified as probably, obviously, you know, one of the more likely guys to be willing to sign an extension. We've seen that, you know, Betts isn't really that interested so far. Kind of looks like he's going to test the market. So they were able to get a deal done at what they thought was a fair price. And, um, you know, having four-fifths of that rotation locked in for the next four years at least is a, a really good step as they look to move past, you know, this contention window and maybe uh, try to contend with a little bit of a different group uh, after this year and next. Absolutely. So of those that you mentioned whose contracts are going to be up, which ones do you think they'll keep? Which ones do you think they'll let go in the coming years? Uh, it's, it's a great, it's the uh, big question around the team and it will be all year. You know, I think their priority is to bring back Mookie Betts and, and sign him to an extension, but Mookie hasn't been too open to that to this point. Seems like he's, you know, drawing a, drawing a hard line stance on, he wants to, you know, be treated fairly and get a huge deal. The Red Sox maybe aren't, you know, at the level he's quite at right now. Um, it just seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between who the Red Sox want back and um, the, the, those players' interests, I think that's their main priority. Bogarts is probably second, but he's a Scott Boris guy. It's rare you see those guys signing extensions, though. You know, times have changed. You're seeing a lot of guys around the league doing that now. Rick Porcello would love to come back, but the Red Sox don't seem to have, you know, too, too much interest, at least so far, with him. And they don't want to re-sign J.D. Martinez long-term because of some concerns about uh, the foot injury that caused a delay in his negotiations last year. So, you know, there seems to be that disconnect. I, I think heading into this whole process, I would have said Sale was the most likely one. I'm not just saying that because he's the one that signed, but he really was. And um, So we'll see. You know, we only have three more days before they close the door on extensions. Um, if they do that, then you're looking at, you know, the last year for sure um, before free agency for Porcello, Martinez, if he opts out, and, of course, Bogarts. Right. As you said, Dave Dombrowski said there will be no more extension talks during the regular season. I think that Rick Porcello is the guy that stands out as someone who's not going to come back just because Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts are so important to this team. A starting pitcher like Rick Porcello is someone who they can kind of afford to let go. So in my opinion, he's the one that they don't end up extending and they don't end up bringing back in free agency. Yeah, it's definitely possible. You know, I think a lot of projections have that. Um, but if you know, Porcello, let's say, is willing to take a team-friendly deal because he loves it in Boston, which he does, and he's been very clear about that, then things could change. The Red Sox do. You know, after maybe this spring, they look at Darwinson Hernandez as a guy who could step into that rotation in 20, uh, 2020. Uh, you know, he's, he's a guy that impressed very uh, a lot of people in spring training. So um, maybe that changes their thinking on that a little bit. You know, they haven't had pitching prospects really in the last few years. Erod's the last, you know, he wasn't even a homegrown guy. He was a good guy in a trade, but, you know, came up, made his debut with the Red Sox. So um, we'll see. You know, there's obviously. Um, just getting started with this whole process, it's going to be a dominant storyline for really the next two full years. So going back to Chris Sale for a moment, he actually signed for a little under $30 million a year, which is less than David Price is making. 
and he definitely could have made more money as a free agent. So why do you think he signed the extension rather than going to free agency and getting possibly more money? I would say definitely. I think the free agent market was a lot kinder to players when David Price was out there, you know, three years That's ago true. than it is now. We've seen that change, and you're seeing, you know, really good pitchers like Gio Gonzalez having to settle for a minor league deal. Not comparing, not you know, comparing sale to Gio Gonzalez by any means, but it's just a totally different market. It's the wild, wild west out there, and players don't know, you know, what they're gonna have to get into. You know, I think he's really comfortable with the deal. The team that he loves playing for, team that loves to win. He has to spend a couple extra months with his family in Fort Myers. So um, that was important to him, and I think it's a fair deal for both sides. Do you think there's any concern either by the Red Sox or Chris Sale with his shoulder and his durability going forward? I don't think the Red Sox would have committed $145 million to a guy that they didn't feel really comfortable with. You know, for Sale, um, he's been pretty honest with the team about everything. They were really cautious last year in shutting him down, but... Um, you know, it's something that it's going to be, and it makes the contract a little bit risky for the Red Sox, obviously. Um, but they're clearly comfortable enough with it, comfortable enough with the information they have internally, which they won't release to the public because Sale doesn't want it out there. Um, private guy and wants to keep that to himself and to the team. Um, but they're comfortable enough, clearly, to give $145 million. If they weren't, they wouldn't have pursued these extension talks as aggressively as they did. Right. Yeah, so moving on to some other news this week. Sandy Leone was placed on waivers, so the Red Sox will be going with two catchers this season, Blake Swihart and Christian Vasquez. Um, what's your take on that? Does this surprise you at all? I, I would have actually parted with Vasquez. I think Sandy Leone is really important to the pitching staff, and Sale and Porcello being two of the guys that I really like throwing to him. But at the end of the day, the Red Sox have invested a lot more in Vasquez and Swihart than they have in Leone. and. Vasquez got an extension last year and really came on towards the end of last season. Offensively, had a big home run in the ALDS against the Yankees. It was a little league home run, but it counts, so it's an important moment. He was swinging the bat better overall. Um, he had developed pretty good rapport in the playoffs with all those pitchers, caught those guys when Leon wasn't. Swihart, I think they you know, they had to keep him on the roster all of last year. They were able to do that without trading him. Uh, he's a former first-round pick, a guy who has a lot of offensive potential and a guy who um, – really is, is under control and younger than the other two. So for me, I would have done it. I would have traded Vasquez, but Leon was the obvious candidate to be uh, sent out. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of days. Not, you know, definite that he will leave the organization. He could clear waivers and go to Pawtucket, which would obviously you know, be a tough situation for him coming off being part of a world series champion all year at the major league level. But um, he's a guy that has been important to this team, especially the pitching staff in the last couple of years. And, it's an unfortunate situation, but one that you know we've known since the end of October the Red Sox would have to address. It will be inter- interesting to see this season how the pitchers manage with Vasquez and Swihart because Leon had such good chemistry with those pitchers and many of them preferred pitching to him. So I wonder if there's going to be any drop in their stats or their comfort with the new catchers now that Sandy Leon's gone. Yeah, definitely a fair question. You know, It's one that a lot of people have brought up in the last couple of days once it became clear that Leon was the odd man out. So um, we'll see. You know, the one thing about um, these guys is Chris Sale and David Price and Rick Porcello were extremely good pitchers of all the uh, in other places before they started with Sandy Leone. They had ran- other random catchers in other places. So, um, you know, there definitely is something to be said for that rapport and that chemistry. But these guys could pitch to me and, and or you and probably be able to get out to the major league level. So we wouldn't be able to catch it, but they would they'd try their best. So speaking of this pitching staff, Alex Cora announced that for this for the first um, six games of this series, they're going to be going with a six-man rotation. Who's going to be that sixth starter? Is it going to be Brian Johnson or Hector Velasquez? 
Yeah, it's it's not clear between those guys. I think Cora is actually going to go with a six starter and the second time through the rotation, which will be the final game of that 11-day West Coast swing, mm-hmm. and that'll be against the Diamondbacks. So we'll see probably the regular five here in the, the first five. It's really we're not even sure who's going to be the game two starter right now. I think it probably will be Evaldi because Price is scheduled to pitch tomorrow. So um, looking to be uh, Sale, obviously, day one and, and Evaldi day two. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it comes down to those two guys and, and Johnson and Velasquez that might come down to, you know, matchups with, with Arizona. Uh, you know, their lineups change so much that um, it's going to take some, some advanced work from the Red Sox to figure out uh, who should go in that game. And, you know, Velasquez is on the roster as a reliever. He's kind of shown that he can be more of that one-inning guy than Johnson has. So uh, my guess would be Brian Johnson right now, but obviously, you know, things can change and guys are going to get sent up and down. Not Johnson. He does out of options, but we'll see what happens the next 10 days, 11 days. And, um, that'll be one day where you're going to see one of the guys who's not in the top five actually getting the chance to start. Yeah. I really like this idea of the six man rotation. I hope they break it out and use it more in the regular season because it's a good way to give your top guys like Chris Sale, David Price rest for when you go into the postseason. They, they won't be fatigued from the long season if you use this six man rotation. So I really like that idea. Um, moving on to some other news, Dust Majora will be starting the season on the IL, the injured list. When do you think we'll see him back with the club? The home opener is the day that I think they might be targeting just to keep play it safe. It'd be a cool storyline to have them come back, um, you know, for opening day at Fenway and everybody's getting the rings and all that stuff. So there's a, you know, there's a, a school of thought that he could come back earlier than that. But I think that that would be, you know, it gives them a lot of flexibility pitching wise too, to have 13 pitchers during that first road trip instead of 12, like they will when Pedroia comes back. So, that would be my guess. Nothing for certain. We haven't really heard much on Pedroia in the last uh, couple of days. I think he's hosting a get-together with all the players at his house in Arizona while they're out there for this exhibition series with the Cubs. So um, once that's all taken care of, he'll head back to Fort Myers, end up going to um, extended spring for a week or so, maybe going to get into a rehab assignment. And then from there, uh, he'll be back with the team. And how many games do you think he'll end up playing this season? It's a great question. I mean, it's it's really impossible to tell. We could we could see him break down at any point, or he could be you know fully healthy again. I don't think it's going to be 162, but if they can get something in the 90 to 120 range out of him with Holt and Nunez and Zue Lin and these guys, they have as good depth options. You know, I think they'd be really happy with it. Yeah, I really hope he can stay healthy for us. Uh, last year we had many production issues, both offensively and defensively, at second base. He fixes both those problems, so I, I really hope he can stay healthy for this season. Well, the old Pedroia fixes both those problems, but yeah. you don't know what you're going to get. So That's true. Um, they're being careful. That's true, yeah. So um, with Pedroia not being on the roster for the opening road trip, who do you think will be playing the majority of games at second base? Is it going to be kind of like last year where, based on matchups, they would have Eduardo Nunez or Brock Holt switch off? Yeah, those are the guys that are going to be in the mix. You know, they're going to mix and match it just like they did a year ago. and. um just like they did in the playoffs even. So um, obviously Ian Kinsler's not here anymore, but um, those guys are going to get their chances, and they did during spring training. So Core is comfortable with both of them. They both, Nunez uh, is a lot healthier this year than he was really at any point last year. Holt, you know exactly what you're going to get out of him. So um, really good options behind Pedroia there, and you'll see a lot of those guys all year. You know, obviously not as much as they played last season. I think Devers is more entrenched at third than Nunez. Um, and Pedroia being back, hurts their playing time, but they're going to be key contributors to this team. 
Um, I want to talk about the closer role. So obviously the Red Sox have not signed Craig Kimbrell back, so there's that hole in the closer role. Who do you think will step up and be the closer? I know Alex Cora hasn't named anyone yet, but it's looking like it's going to be either Matt Barnes or Ryan Brazier. I don't think they're going to name a closer. I don't think they're going to have a set guy in the ninth inning. I think they're going to totally go off the wall and play it by matchups on a day-to-day basis, and you'll have both of those guys racking up saves at times. They might have other guys stepping in and doing it um, just based on matchups. So uh, it's going to be, if they decide to do it that way, it sounds like a lot of work for Alex Cora, but he's obviously a guy that can do it. Um, You know, it it would be um, not necessarily a closer by committee, but just having – you know, Barnes and Brazier pitch the most high leverage spots. And if seven, eight, nines come up in the ninth, then maybe you give that to a Thornburg or a Colton Brewer or something like that. So um, I don't think it'll be, we'll, we'll know, you know, Thursday after the game, if it's close, mm-hmm. you'll see how they do things. And then we'll ask Cora, what's your plan moving forward? But um, for now, my guess would be that, you know, they might just uh, kind of do something a little bit different than we've ever seen before and try to just do this playing the matchups and trying to um, maximize the potential of the guys they do have. Um, it's going to be, you know, I think people love complaining about the bullpen. I got the tweet, had a tweet blow up over the weekend because I tweeted who is in the bullpen and Yankees <laughs> fans are very happy about it. Red, you know, taunting Red Sox fans. It's, it's bullpen, you know, the, uh, the eight guys that are on the roster to start the year are not going to be the guys that we see in June. They're not going to be the guys we see in August. And obviously, not in October. This is going to be fluid all year. There's also, you know, remember there's going to be, you know, 18 teams out of it by the trade deadline willing to trade some relievers. So um, it's a fluid situation. I wouldn't worry too much about it right now. Um, but, you know, there is obviously the hole to fill. Craig Gimbrell, Joe Kelly was good at times. So um, it's, you know, like all these things we're talking about, a huge story heading in and probably um, the big one, at least at the beginning of the season. Do you think there's any chance at all that the Red Sox will sign Craig Kimbrell back at this point since he's still a free agent and there doesn't really seem to be like a good suitor for him? No, I think that door has been closed for a while. There's too many luxury tax implications. I think, you know, there are the Brewers, the Braves, some other teams that could be interested in him. But um, for the Red Sox, that ship has sailed. So one guy who could potentially come up and help the bullpen, Durbin Feltman. What's the chance that you think that he'll come up at some point during the season and contribute in the bullpen? I think it's possible at some point during the season, you know, obviously a guy that uh, was drafted just last year. So um, people keep hearing that name and are going to clamor for him. But the truth is nobody really knows. Nobody really knows what he can provide. You know, he pitched in a couple of major league spring games. They got to look at him, but um, they're not going to rush him. They don't want to rush his development. A year ago right now, he was pitching at TCU. So um, it's rare to see those guys come out. It happens obviously, but rare to see those guys contribute and, you know, the Red Sox have such a strong team that they are not going to feel like they want to rush the development of a Feltman or, let's say, a Darwinson Hernandez to, to jeopardize their future um, just for, you know, one bullpen arm on this team. I, I think it's um, it's possible for sure. And same with Hernandez. Hernandez is probably more likely because he's more advanced. But, um, you know, to assume that he's going to be coming in and be the closer come September, October, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think he'll be the closer because you can't just really throw a young guy into such a high-pressure situation like that. But I do believe that later in the season he can definitely contribute in more of like a setup role in like the 7th, 8th innings to get to maybe Matt Barnes and Ryan Brazier in the ninth. Yeah, totally possible. One guy I want to talk about too in that bullpen, or who could be in that bullpen later on, Henry Mejia. Do you think he could be called up at some point and actually contribute? Yeah, he's got a better chance for me than Saltman just because he has that major league experience, obviously a 
crazy set of circumstances being, you know, banned from baseball or steroids, reinstated, that whole thing. But he impressed the times and he was actually in the mix to make the major league roster. So um, I think probably from Alex Ford didn't seem to have very high expectations of Mejia early on in the spring. By the time we were at the end, he actually had some interest in putting him on the major league roster. It didn't work out. I'd expect Mejia to, you know, go to AAA if he performs well, then, then things could change. So, um, you know, he's not, he's not on the 40-man roster. The Red Sox actually do have some 40-man flexibility. They have a couple open spots. Another one will be open once Leon, uh, that situation is resolved. So um, the door is open for Mejia to contri- contribute. You know, there's a lot of guys down, you know, Zach Putnam. He was not healthy for a lot of spring training, but he's a guy with major league experience who could help. Um, Ryan Weber, a bunch of these guys, you know, talking to the agents for a lot of relievers over the offseason, they said, you know, we like we'd like our guys to sign with the Red Sox just because there's that chance that they could be the Ryan Brazier of this year, you know, pitching in the minors to start coming up to the majors and being a big contributor down the stretch. Yeah, some other minor leaguers, not pitchers, but position players, some of the top prospects in the organization, Michael Chavis and Bobby Dahlbeck, do you think that they could be called up at some point in the season other than like roster expansions? I mean, it really comes down to if somebody gets hurt. You know, I think it's you're you have a team that is so stacked with position players in terms of, you know, both quantity and quality. It's a team where there's really no place to put anybody to the point where they have to trade one of their, you know, contributors on the offensive side kind of from last year and and, and, uh, and a catcher. So, you know, for those guys, they, you know, both impressed at times during the spring. Chavis is really hard to, hot to start. Dahlbeck's defense is really good and Cora appreciated that. So, you know, unfortunately for those guys, their third baseman, third baseman's third base is a spot where the Red Sox obviously have Devers entrenched for years to come. I think we could see Dahlbeck or Chavis moving to first base. That spot will almost definitely be open after this year with Moreland and Pierce both being free agents. So, you know, shortstop is this something that Chavis has played in the past. I think they look at Chatham potentially more as a long-term, C.J. Chatham more as a long-term guy there if Bogarts goes. So uh, this year it's going to be tough to crack. If there's an injury, those guys are going to be in the mix. But um, it's a good problem to have for the Red Sox. But, you know, for those guys, it's not the type of team where he can come in and, and earn a spot just because it's it's completely uh, blocked at every position. I think the best place for Michael Chavis in the future will be second base, and I think his fate kind of depends on Dustin Majoria. Uh, if Dustin Majoria can't really play anymore and ends up retiring before those three years of his contract are up, I can see Michael Chavis sliding in there at second base and playing there, um, and then Bobby Dahlbeck probably at first base and Devers at third. I, I like the way that that works out. Um, plus, with Chavis, a second baseman doesn't really have to be that great a defender anymore. They can find, kind of like shift them around in shifts to kind of take the pressure off them, kind of like the Brewers did with Travis Shaw last year. So I think that could be a good situation for Michael Chavis to be in at second base. Do you think he'll end up playing more second base than other positions? He tried it in the spring, and, and they really weren't too impressed with what they saw, so they kind of ended that experiment, at least for now. It's possible that they'll go back to it at times during the season. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely are going to be open to the idea just because of the question marks around Pedroia. Right. Um, speaking of question marks, Steve Pierce, his status is on uh, his status is questionable for opening day with a calf injury. What's the latest on him? I haven't heard yet. Or it should be talking to the media at some point in uh, Arizona in the next few hours, and he'll give an update. Pierce is actually important to the Red Sox in the first series because they'll face Three lefties out of the four pitchers in Seattle, Marco Gonzalez and Wade LeBlanc and um, 
I can't think of the other one right now, but three of the four are lefties, and you know, that's what that's Pierce's bread and butter right there. So if not, Sam Travis will step into his spot. But uh, yeah, it's the only real injury concern day to day type thing the Red Sox are dealing with. Okay, last question I want to ask you. I already know the answer to this, but I'm still going to ask: Who's your March Madness pick for this year? I went with Duke. Um, you know, just obviously a great. No, obviously not. Um, <laughs> they. I was really rooting hard for UCF. Uh, yesterday and I almost pulled it off, but yeah, and I have Carolina over Duke in the national championship game. I think I'd probably die of stress if that happened, but um, it was, it, it'll be obviously a great event for sports if it happens and um, it, it definitely could. So, but Carolina's looked good in the first two games throughout the last three halves. So um, still hoping they can pull it off and uh, it would be two and three years would be really impressive. So, I'm hoping I picked them. Uh, all my bracket pools of my friends from school all also picked them. So um, I don't even know how we're going to determine a winner. But uh, <laughs> hopefully they can pull it off for us. Do you think Duke will even make it to the championship? They didn't look too good yesterday. Yeah, probably. I mean, they're they're really good. So uh, if Zion's in the game, they're going to have a chance. That's, that's really what it comes down to. But um yeah, anything could happen. It's March, as we saw yesterday. So right. um, I was ready to award UCF not just their their football championship, but I was going to give them the basketball one this year too, if, if they won yesterday. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Chris. I really appreciate it. Yep, thank you. Big thanks for Chris Cotillo for coming on and talking with me as a guest co-host. Uh, now let's send it over to the interview I did this week with Brewers prospect Noah Zavolis. All right, I'm joined now by Noah Zavallis, a pitching prospect for the Milwaukee Brewers. How's it going, Noah? It's going well. How are you? I'm good. So you grew up in Acton, Massachusetts. So did you grow up a Red Sox fan? I did. I grew up uh, a, a diehard Sox fan, and um, you know, a, a, a little part of me has maintained that even through my journey through pro baseball. Did you have a uh, childhood idol on the Red Sox? Growing up, uh, it was always Pedro Martinez on the mound and Kevin Euclid at the plate. Yeah, Pedro. As a pitcher yourself, he's the guy to look up to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I was very young um, when, when he was kind of in his heyday, but um, his, his antics in the dugout and, and then just the way he went about his business on the mound was uh, kind of an inspiration for me. Absolutely. So you probably haven't faced anyone at this point yet, but who's the one guy that you pitch to and you're like, whoa, I'm really facing this guy right now. Who would that be as you progress? Um, I haven't, I haven't had that, that much opportunity um, on the field, but I was, I was fortunate to be promoted to AAA for a few days um, last summer and, and found myself in a locker room next to, um, you know, eight year big league vets, uh, Gordon Beckham, I remember seeing him play on TV. Um, so to, to kind of be wearing the same uniform as him was, was pretty wild. And then, um, Actually, Robinson Cano came down and did a, a rehab assignment with us in, in Everett, Washington. Um, so it was uh, it was a real treat to to go from seeing him play catch in front of the dugout at Yankee Stadium to play catch in front of the dugout at Everett Memorial Stadium. Yeah, that's got to be cool. So, what's it like the whole process? Getting drafted, getting that blue check mark on Twitter, getting written about in articles. What's all that like? Um, for a, for a senior sign, especially out of the Ivy League, it's um, maybe a little bit different from the the more traditional um, draft process for a junior out of a, a more a notable baseball school. But for me, at least, it was, um, it was really something that you know I, I wanted for, for my whole life and, and worked towards 
um, all the way up through that moment. And so I, I kind of had a, a sense of serenity going into it, knowing that, you know, I had, I had done absolutely everything I possibly could to put myself in a position to hear my name called on draft day and kind of let the universe take control from there. Um, you know, as, as a senior coming from the Ivy League, I, I knew that you know, after my, my summer on the Cape, I needed to kind of show that I wasn't just a flash in the pan um, and was, was fortunate enough to, to have a good senior year um, and do some, uh, some pre-draft workouts and have a lot of conversations with teams. So I knew that, that there was some interest um, and I was, I was confident um, going into, into the draft itself. There was just, you know, there's always a, a, little, a little thought in the back of your head. Um, you know, what if it doesn't happen? And um, fortunately, I didn't really have to address that when the, the Mariners called me. So is that how they ha- it happened? They called you on the phone or did you see it on TV first? Uh, the, the draft, uh, so the draft works, um, it goes over three different days. And uh, the, the kind of the more televised part are, are day one and day two, where they, they spend a lot of time on each pick um, and, and kind of do a rundown and all that. So for me, it was really the um, the area scout that had had come to come to my games on the Cape and at Harvard um, gave me a call uh, as a as a heads up a few picks before mine came up um, and just you know made sure I was I was by the phone and uh, looking at the the draft tracker online because at that point they don't uh, they don't televise it uh, and I was I was in the living room of my host family's house in Wareham um, we were all kind of huddled around a little computer screen. Um, and so I, I saw my name came up almost at the same time as I got a call from the, the Mariners scouting director. Um, and he, he said, congratulations, you're a Seattle Mariner. And then you were traded from the Mariners to the Brewers this past offseason. How'd you find out that you were traded? So that was, a, that was kind of a wild night. Um, I had just, just finished up a, a workout in the gym and uh, got a call from my agent saying, um, you know, hey, there are some, there are some rumors brewing. Um, just wanted to give me a heads up. And, and so I kind of stayed by my phone. Uh, and over the course of the evening, I got phone calls from the uh, Mariners director of uh, minor league farm director, I guess I should say, as well as the director of scouting, um, who kind of informed me that I had been traded. Um, and then I had a few phone calls with um, folks in the, Marin- uh, the, the Brewers organization, notably the farm director and the pitching coordinator. Um, so it was kind of a, almost a seamless transition in terms of, um, you know, an exit from the Mariners and an entrance into the Brewers organization. Now you're a Harvard graduate and the GM of the Brewers is a Harvard graduate too, David Stearns. Did he reach out to you at all when you were traded? Um, so David didn't actually reach out, but I was fortunate enough to, to run into David here at spring training. Um, uh, just ran into him in the hallway and, and I recognized him. He recognized me. And so that was kind of a fortuitous conversation. I don't think that that happens every day where you get to, you know, uh, talk shop with a, with a GM about, uh, you know, something as, as kind of niche as, as where you went to school. Yeah. So while you were playing with Harvard, you actually threw a no hitter against a rival Yale. So t- take me through what it's like. When did you know that you had a no hitter going and what was it like to finish it off? That was a that was kind of a um, a special night in a, in a lot of different regards. Most notably, it was a Friday night. Uh, we don't typically play night games in the Ivy League. Um, for me, I, I actually realized, you know, in the first inning that I had something going just because it was the first time in um, a few starts that I, I had a clean first inning. So one, two, three, and um, you know, I kind of t- was able to take a breath of fresh air and say, okay, I got through that one. Um, you you know. As a pitcher, you you know kind of 
all the way through at every at every step uh, when something like that's going on. Um, but it you know it, uh, it it grew, and you know kind of towards the the seventh, it, it starts to set in that you you've got a chance at history, chance at forever. Um, and then of course I, I managed to make an error and, and ruin my own perfect game, uh, which. Which, in a lot of ways, was was a good thing, you know. If, I, if anyone was going to do it, I would I would much rather it be me. Um, but the the ninth was something special too, uh, with you know two outs, um, and then managing to end the game on a on a strikeout. Uh, it was a little bit delayed though, because the you know it was, a, it was a slider in the dirt. Uh, we had to get him out at first, and, and once we did that, it was it was special because really the whole crowd erupted. It wasn't just the the Harvard side. Um, that the Yale fans too were were pretty excited. So one thing I always love to ask players: Do you have any kind of pregame rituals or superstitions that you always follow? Um, normally, I do. It's it's a little bit different in, in pro ball, just because of the the timeline of um, you know when you get to the field and and all of the the pre work that you have to take care of before the games. Um, and I actually haven't had a uh, a chance to really be a starter yet in, in pro baseball, which. Uh, which will change this spring. Um, but just in, in, in general, um, I think for me, it's, it's mainly just kind of trying to time my meals correctly. I'm, I'm one of the guys that doesn't like to eat, uh, doesn't like to play with, with, a, you know, with, with much in my stomach. So I want to make sure um, I get a, a good meal early on and then uh, maybe a snack or two before the game. So that, that really helps me. Um, it's kind of a mundane thing, but just, making sure I set myself up where I'm not hungry, um, but I'm also not full. Do you have um, like a go-to post-game meal since you don't eat before? Um, we're really at the mercy of whatever they, they provide for us, uh, which oftentimes is, is actually a, a pretty good spread. And, and usually it's, it's some combination of, uh, you know, a meat and a vegetable, uh, maybe some rice as well. My, my favorite would be kind of a, a, a chicken rice and, and you know, green beans or broccoli. Uh, to really re- refuel after the game. Yeah, so give us some insight into that minor league life. Like, do you have any stories of a hotel you stayed at, or some story from like the bus or something? Because I always hear all these stories from the minor leagues. What do you have? I was I was surprised actually in that I I really made it through my first pro season with with no horror stories. <laughs> uh, the the food was was pretty good by and large. Um, we did stay at one hotel in. Oh, I want to say that was Spokane, Washington. Uh, that was supposedly on the on the list of the U.S.'s top ten most haunted hotels. Um, <laughs> didn't didn't have any paranormal activity that I saw, um, but it was it was funny to kind of uh, you know look it up and, and see. Oh yeah, you know <laughs> that's where we're staying tonight. Yeah. Um, bus trips were were really not too bad. Um, the the biggest difference I noticed in terms of the minor league lifestyle as opposed to the, the college baseball lifestyle is uh, how fast things can change. And, and the fact that you're part of an organization, not just one team. So I had, I had, you know, two or three different instances where uh, the first time, you know, I, my mom and sister came out to visit me in, in Everett, Washington. And then um, they didn't even get to see me pitch before that night. I was actually sent up to the high A team in Modesto, California, uh, so, you know, you, you really don't have control over your own movement. Um, but it's it's kind of a, a happy coincidence that, you know, um, you get to you get to move about uh, and it happens at the drop of a hat. Have you had like a specific mentor throughout your time in the minor leagues or in college, like someone who helped guide you to where you are now? 
I've had, I mean, my, my dad first and foremost, um, and, and that started way back in T-ball. Um, <laughs> he's been, been with me every step of the way. And, um, you know, I, I owe him every, everything I have, um, just to be able to, to be sitting here at a, a, a pro spring training. Um, but I think the, you know, wherever you go, baseball is such a small world that you kind of can kind of tend to find someone. Uh, and for me in, in college, that was some of the, the trainers that I was able to work with, um, outside of, outside of the school and just to, to kind of go and find the, um, the people that were really invested in, in, you know, helping, helping me as a, as a baseball player improve because in college that was really, um, really what I needed. And then, you know, summer ball with the, the whole Cape league and, and Wareham particularly experienced for me became kind of the, the turning point in that, you know, I had uh, a pitching coach in Wareham as well as a host family that, um, you know, really just kind of became my family. Uh, I still speak with them on a, on an almost daily basis, um, kind of gaining, gaining that, um, that sense of belonging to a, a town and a team that you know, really was, was larger than myself was really important for me. And then once, once you get to pro ball, a lot of times you'll, you'll find some older guys or guys will come down uh, to do rehab assignments. And uh, they're, they're always great to just pick their brains and, and kind of, uh, get a sense for you know where they've been and, and how you can use their experience to get to where they are. Yeah, so this was your first spring training with a major league club, I believe, this year, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So did you get to interact with any of those major league players and kind of like pick their brains, like you said, talk to some of them? Yeah, I was actually um, very fortunate in that Brent Suter is a, uh, is a left-handed pitcher with the, the Milwaukee Brewers. He's on the big club right now. Uh, he's rehabbing. Um, but he, he's a Harvard graduate as well. He, he pitched at Harvard as well as in Wareham. Um, so he and I have swum, uh, swam in, in some of the same circles and he was kind enough to, to take me out to dinner and introduce me to his wife and his young son. So, um, you know, that, that's such an invaluable contact to have and, and really just pick his brain because not only did he go through some of the, uh, the same programs as I have, um, he's, he's living proof that, you know, a, a kid from Harvard can, um, can make his way up in a, in a big league organization. So he's been, um, wonderful to talk to every time I see him uh, in the complex or around the complex, he's, um, he's always got a smile on his face and, and a, a friendly word to say. So, uh, having him there is, is a, you know, a great resource and I, I can't thank him enough for everything he's kind of, um, given to me in terms of advice and, and guidance. So I'm curious to get your perspective on this as a player. Uh, do you value really anything that happens in spring training? Um, it depends on who you are, and I, I certainly do, just based on the fact that I wasn't a, a high draft pick. I didn't sign for millions of dollars. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, it, you know, it doesn't really matter how you perform in spring training. It's all predetermined. Um, and I'm sure the organization does have a, a fairly good idea of, of you know how they view you and where they're going to send you. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is such a, a delicate and fleeting um, endeavor that we're all a part of. And you know, any any chance you get to to show to differentiate yourself and and kind of put yourself in the best light possible is is one to be taken advantage of. So there's there's really no there's no meaningless opportunity here. Um, as, as someone who's who's trying to show that I can succeed at the highest level. Um, there, there really isn't uh, room for, 
you know, taking taking a break or taking it easy. Someone is always watching. So the past few years, the MLB has done Players Weekend, where players can pick name, nicknames to put on the back of their jerseys. So what would your nickname be? Um, throughout throughout pro ball, it's been just Harvard. Um, <laughs> when you're the only guy on the team that, that has gone to that school, um, that kind of becomes a default. Um, a, lot, a lot of the coaches call me Z or Zav, and I, I like that one, so that's probably where I'd go. Um, just a, a, a shortened, shortened version of my last name, which is, um, as you know, a little bit difficult to say. Uh-huh. So I just put that on the back. So to bring it back to the Red Sox for a quick moment, where were you when they won the World Series? And since you're pitching for a different organization, how did you feel when they won? I was actually uh, on campus. Um, I was back at Harvard watching it uh, in in one of the dorms. Uh, but a funny story about this past postseason is um, I have a, a friend who, who works at Fenway, and so I was actually fortunate enough to, to – go to every single one of the um, home postseason and World Series oh, games. Nice. So I was I was there for for almost all of it. Um, the only games I missed were the ones that weren't in Boston. So that was uh, at that at that point, you know, I was still a Mariner and uh, you know I was I was able to play it off as, you know, I was still rooting for the American League team. Uh, right. but I was I was certainly very, very happy to see that we beat the Dodgers. So when you're sitting at Fenway, do you prefer to have a hot dog or a sausage? Definitely a Fenway Frank. That's an easy one. <laughs> um, last question I have. This one's for a friend. Do you have a really bad umpire when you're in high school? <laughs> I know exactly which friend you're talking about. <laughs> um, I did have uh, some, some horrible umpires in high school, but I did have one very good umpire in middle school. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for coming on, Noah. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great talking to you. And that's our podcast for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Follow me on Instagram at RedSox underscore dugout. This was our last podcast episode before the regular season. Thursday, the Red Sox will take on the Seattle Mariners at 7 o'clock Eastern time. Can't wait. Baseball's back. See ya.